Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Our sermon series that we've been looking at, basically since the beginning of the year, I've entitled More Like Jesus. It's kind of uh, appropriate for us, considering the theme of our verse, all things work together for good. And we know that because, well, the next verse says, for whom he did for no, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And so the goal is for us as believers to be more like the Lord. We know that one day we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. But we don't see him as he is yet. So while we are here on this earth, we are still in this process. And we've taken a look at a number of different aspects regarding our Lord. We've taken a look at his holiness, about how he dealt with temptation. We've taken a look at his passion and his zeal. We've taken a look at his spiritual perspective. For us, we live by sight, but we are told to live by faith. We looked at his soul winning, his regard for lost souls and for them to be saved. We looked at his compassion for others, how he was moved to compassion. We've taken a look at his service. We've taken a look at his obedience. But if we're going to cover all of the aspects regarding being more like Jesus Christ, we cannot exclude this very prominent and important part of the life of Christ, which is his suffering. To be more like Christ includes suffering. As much as a Christian life includes success and victory and joys and blessing, we talk about a lot of those things. When we're here on Sunday mornings, when we open our Bibles, we read a lot about victory. We read a lot about success. We read a lot about how we can have blessings in this life, how we can have joy in our hearts, and all of those things are true. But this part is also true. It is unavoidable that Jesus suffered, and we cannot skip over this part. I want to read to you a a little bit of a longer passage of Scripture than I normally read when I preach, but I think this would be the best way for us to take a look at what God wants us to know about his suffering. Matthew chapter 27, verse number 27 is where I'll begin. I'll read down through to verse number 50. It is a fairly lengthy passage, but I want to read it as God gave it to us. The Bible there says, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the common hall and gathered unto him the whole band of soldiers, and they stripped him and put on him a scarlet robe. And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit upon him and took the reed and smote him on the head. And after that they had mocked him, they took the robe off from from him and put his raiment on him and led him away to be crucified. And as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they were come unto a place called Golgotha, that is to say, a place of a skull, they gave him vinegar to drink, mingled with gall. And when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture they did cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head his accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
Then were there two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads. And saying, thou that, did, uh, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now, if you will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man called for Elias and straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost and there he died. This was the suffering of Jesus on the day that he died on the cross. We have to realize that Jesus suffered in his crucifixion. He suffered for my sins and for your sins. Jesus suffered greatly. Not only that, Jesus expects us to go through suffering as well. Philippians chapter 1 verse 29 says, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. See, we talk about Jesus Christ, and we talk about salvation, we talk about the joys and the blessings, we talk about the great things that God has for us, and he has great things for us, amen? amen? Oh, he's got some wonderful things for us, not just in the next life, but in the current life to come, some wonderful relationships, the joy that we can have, the hope that we can have. God gives us some wonderful things, but also with those things, God expects us to go through suffering as well. The Christian life is full of victory, and the Christian life is full of wonderful relationships, but also in the Christian life is suffering. With triumph comes tribulation. But the question naturally comes, but why? Because we understand why God wants to give us victory. We understand why God wants to give us blessings. We understand why God wants to give us some of these things. But why suffering? Anybody here enjoy suffering? None of us enjoys it, so why would God give it to us? I want to turn your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. The Bible there says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I want to draw your attention to verse number 17, the first of those verses that I read. It says, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment. And I want you to take note of these next words. Worketh for us. Something is working for you. Something is working on your behalf. This verse makes it clear that what that thing is that is working on our behalf is affliction. 
It is suffering. We don't usually think of suffering this way. We usually think that suffering is working against us, right? That suffering is something to be removed as quickly as possible because the suffering is what is holding me back, right? If I could just have joy, if the path could be smooth, if everything could go well, if I could experience victory and all of these things, then of course things would be so much better. But this verse lets us know that when God gives us suffering, he's trying to work on our behalf. Our theme for this year is all things work together for good. Included in that all things is not just the good things. Amen? Of course, we love the good things. We want the good things. We pray for the good things. Anybody here pray for suffering? Not me. <laughs> I say, God, if you give me suffering, I pray that you'll give me endurance. I pray that you'll give me patience. I pray that, you know, I'll be faithful to you. I don't pray for suffering. But included in the all things work together is suffering. Because if suffering were not a part of that, he wouldn't have said all things. He would have said the good things. The good things work together for good. And of course, we would say, praise the Lord for that. But included in the all things works together is suffering. Now, you may suffer for God at work. You may suffer for God at home. You may suffer for God in your finances, in your health, in some relationships, in some friendships that you might have. But if you suffer for Christ, know that that suffering is working for you and not against you. So the question for us is, will we, will we be willing to go through suffering? Will we be willing to sit in that seat of suffering if God so desires, if God places us in that seat of suffering? Will we be willing to sit there until God tells us it's time for you to move on? Or will we say, God, get me out of this place. I don't want to be here anymore. Remove this from me. And even if it's not, I'm going to leave on my own will and my own volition. The suffering is too much. I don't want it. I'm out of here. Well, if I could try to encourage you this morning with six reasons why suffering works for us and not against us. If God puts you in that place of suffering, if you suffer for the Lord, there are six very good reasons why we ought to follow the Lord even into suffering. The first reason is that God educates Christians through suffering. Hebrews chapter 5, verse number 7 says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. God desires to teach us. God desires to educate us. God desires for us to learn more about him and to learn how to be more like him, and he wants to teach us to obey. That verse there, yet learn he obedience. For us as Christians, we learn obedience in the tough things, not in the easy things. Because if you have a parent, for instance, who tells your child, go get some candy, boy, that's the easiest command in the world to obey, amen? Right? You tell a kid, go get some candy, go get some cookies, go get some dessert. Oh, you don't have to tell them twice. They're on it. They're anticipating that he'll tell them that, and they're looking forward to it. They hope for it. Oh, you don't really learn obedience there because obviously it's already a part of your desires. You are obeying, but you haven't really learned obedience. It's in the harder things that you learn obedience. When instead of saying, go get dessert, it's finish your vegetables, 
or go do your homework, or clean up the mess that you made, or do all of these different things, do the chores that I've given to you. The things that they don't like to do, that is where they learn obedience. And for us as Christians as well, it is in the tough things that we learn obedience. When we go through suffering, will we continue to follow the Lord even though it leads us into those trials and tribulations? God wants us to teach us to obey. God also wants to teach us to trust. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, who, when he was reviled, this is speaking of Jesus, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. 1 Peter chapter 4, wherefore let them that suffer according to the will of God commit the keeping of their souls to him in well-doing as unto a faithful creator. Part of the Christian life includes this question that I'm sure all of us have come to, at least in some small way, is what if we try to do the right thing and the result isn't what we wanted? You ever been there? You ever try to do the right thing? You're trying to follow what God says? You're, you're, you're looking at the Bible and you say, this is what the Bible says, this is what God wants for me to do, and you do it and, and the, the reward doesn't seem to be there. You have a, a problem with a relationship with a friend and, and you know that the Bible says that you should forgive them or you should try to make things right with them. Maybe you did something wrong against a friend and you're like, you know what, this is humbling, but I'm going to go and I'm going to apologize to my friend. I think that's the right thing to do. I, should, I did wrong. I should go to that friend. I should apologize for the wrong that I committed against him and, uh, and seek his forgiveness. And of course, in the back of our minds, we're always thinking, I'm going to seek forgiveness. I don't know what will happen, but I hope that they will forgive me, Right. And that maybe they in turn will also say, yeah, I, I wanted to apologize as well. When you said this or when this happened, I was upset and I said this in return. That was not right. I shouldn't have said that. You know, that's how you hope that it'll go. But what if you go to this friend and you seek an apology and instead of an acceptance of an apology, they curse you back instead? What do you do? What should we do? How should we think about that? What about when maybe the Lord speaks to your heart about your finances and the Bible speaks about tithing? Maybe you go to a missions conference and, and you hear these missionaries preach about these people that they're going to in foreign lands or church planting here in America. And they're, and they're presenting their ministry and they're presenting, you know, the places that they've gone to and the people that they've been able to help. And, and God moves in your heart. You know what? I want to support missionaries this year. You know, I'm going to support, I'm going to support these missionaries. At, you know, I don't know. You know, 50 bucks a month or something, you know, and 100 bucks a month. I, I want to support these missionaries. I, I want to do something. I'm going to give $10 a week. All right, I want to do something. And you, you make that commitment, God, for the next year, I'm going to give $10 a week, and I want to give that to missions. And that very Sunday, you put on there an extra $10. You write missions, and you put it into the offering plate. And then that very week, your car breaks down. Or maybe you have to go to the hospital because of some unforeseen health event and now you got a big bill sitting there in front of you are we still going to continue to trust god or are we going to say oh you know what god i know i said that but you know i didn't know this bill was going to come and i didn't know that you know this problem would arrive are we still going to trust him that's where god really helps us to learn to trust god god also wants to teach us to endure james chapter 5 verse number 10 take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience behold we count them happy which endure you have heard of the patience of job and have seen the end of the lord that the lord is very pitiful 
and of tender mercy. See, we learn endurance and patience and faithfulness in the suffering. See, God told us that we would go through suffering. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So why do Christians suffer? Why does God allow us to suffer? Why isn't it that the moment we get saved, that God removes and pulls all suffering from our lives? Wouldn't that be nice? At least we would think so, right? We would think, if I get saved, everything is going to be smooth. There's going to be no problems. Everything's going to be great. It's going to be sunshine and flowers, uh, you know, and rainbows all the rest of my life. And yet, for the Christian, haven't we all gone through suffering? Why is that? Well, God wants to work for us. God wants to work on us. And the first is God educates Christians through suffering. The second reason why we can be happy and we can even understand the good things that come out of suffering is that God expands capacity to those who suffer. Philippians chapter 3, verse number 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. See, Paul in the previous verses, if you read Philippians chapter 3, is, is talking about all of the earthly advantages that he had. He talked about his ancestral advantage. He was Jewish. He was born in the tribe of Benjamin. He talked about his educational advantage. Obviously, he was quite smart. He was quite brilliant, had some excellent teachers. He had a reputational advantage. People saw his zeal. They looked at him as a Pharisee. He had all of the earthly advantages. People looked up to him. I'm sure he had some financial advantages. He had educational advantages. He was smarter than everybody else around him. He had that ancestry that you can't go back and change. He, he had all of these advantages. And yet in the previous verses, he said, I gave them all up. I gave up my ancestral advantage. I gave up my reputational advantage. I gave up all of these things. Why would he give them up? Because God, uh, Paul realized that God had a better, bigger advantage which was the power of God. More powerful than his reputation was the power of God. More powerful than his academic and educational advantage was the power of God. And, God, and, and Paul was saying, I, I want that power. And that power was revealed in the resurrection. All right? That power was revealed in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. But the God of all grace who hath called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. See, we desire to experience the power of God, don't we? We want the power of God. I want the power of God. Don't you want the power of God? Yeah, you want the power of God in your life. You want power over your emotions. You want power over some different areas in your life, power over sin. You want all of these things in your life. How do we get that power? Well, it's interesting what the Bible says here regarding suffering and then power. Because we know that Jesus has power because of the resurrection, right? That's how we know. If you died, can you resurrect yourself? Of course not, right? That's how we know uh, Jesus is not like us, amen? Jesus was not just a man because he resurrected himself. Now, the interesting thing about resurrecting yourself is before you resurrect yourself, you have to die. Right? Isn't that obvious? You can't come back to life if you haven't died yet. So Jesus had to die in order to show the power of the resurrection. 
And it is in that suffering, that first death before the resurrection, that we see, whoa, Jesus really does have all power. Wow, Jesus really must be God. Wow, Jesus is not just a good teacher. Jesus is not just a man. Jesus was not just a historical figure. Jesus was God because he rose again from the dead. But for him to rise again from the dead, he first had to die. He first had to go through that suffering. And God desires also to give us that power, that resurrection-type power. But for us to receive it, there is first a suffering that we first must enter into. The third reason why suffering works on our behalf is because God establishes a contrast by suffering. God is able to distinguish us from others through our suffering. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject unto your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. We've all had bosses in our lives. I'm sure that we've all had better bosses, not so great bosses, just like all of these people here. And Peter writes and he says, be subject not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Why? For this is thankworthy. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it if when you be buffeted for your faults, you shall take it patiently? But if when you do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. See, if you go to work and you make a mistake and your boss is onto you and berating you for the mistake that you made and you just stand there and you take it, you don't get any special credit, right? Because you made a mistake. You deserve for somebody to come in and confront you with your mistake, right? Nobody would feel necessarily that much pity. Well, you made a mistake. You shouldn't have done that. You did the wrong thing. But if your boss comes to you and begins to berate you for something you didn't do and you take it patiently, there's some credit that is due there. That's, that's what he's saying. Verse number 21, For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. You know what God desires to do is to show that there is a difference between the saved and the unsaved. Amen? Amen? If you're saved, you are different. You're different because you're part of a different family. You have a new father. God is your heavenly father now, and praise the Lord for it. Amen. When you are saved, you have a new nature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You have the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. Now you have an advocate that is there dwelling with you, that is evidence of your salvation, that will help you. There's a difference. Now, we see all of those things in the Bible, but we can't see them with our eyes, right? I can't see your heart. I can't see the Holy Spirit. I can't see that spiritual relationship. I can't see any of those things. So how is God going to distinguish in this life between the saved and the unsaved? obviously through our behaviors, through how we act, the words that we use, the way that we respond to things, the way that we respond to suffering. Acts chapter number 16, verse 22, gives us an example of this. 
Paul and Silas are there. They're in the city of Philippi. And the Bible says, And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison and charged the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So here is Paul and Silas. They haven't done anything wrong, and yet they are accused of a crime. They are thrown into jail. They are beaten. They are put into the stocks so that they can't even move freely about their cells. And it's that next verse that shows us the difference between saved and lost. Verse 25, and at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang, Woe is me unto God. Is that what the Bible says? No, the Bible says that it's saying praises. Praises unto God and notice who heard them. The prisoners heard them. Don't you think all of those prisoners that were there, oh, we got some new, got some new friends here today. Oh, we got some individuals. We heard, we heard a little bit about these individuals, and oh, they're here with us now. I wonder what they're like. They know what prisoners are like. They are prisoners, and they're living with prisoners. And yet here come these two new prisoners who, after being beaten, after being thrown in jail, after having their feet thrown into the stocks, they're expecting cursing and wailing, maybe even silence. Instead, they hear singing. And praises to God. That would have said to them, oh, these guys are different. There's something different about them. Maybe they didn't know initially what it was, but maybe when they heard the songs, they're like, oh, these, these individuals, they trust in Christ. Oh, these individuals are believers in God. Oh, these individuals, oh, they're saved. And it is in that suffering that it becomes very apparent that these individuals are different from everybody else. We see later that the jailer trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ to be a savior. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 3. But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, Oh, that's not a word we associate with suffering, suffering and happiness. But the Bible says if we suffer for righteousness' sake, we should be happy. Why? Be not afraid of terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Notice that people will observe your life, they will see you go through suffering, and they will see your spirit responding in a different way and they will begin to ask you questions. How could you be like this? You're going through some deep suffering. You seem a little bit different. What is it that's different? Verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they may speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely ac accuse your good conversation. For it is better if the will of God be so that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. You know, what the Bible is saying is that People may curse you. People may treat you wrongly. But when they see your response, they will notice, oh, there's something different. And God desires to make a, different, a difference between the saved and the lost. Fourthly, the fourth reason why we see that suffering works for us and not against us is God extends comfort through suffering. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 3 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth all, us in all our tribulations, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any tribulation by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted by God. God allows Christians to go through suffering so they can help other Christians who are going through suffering. Because we're all going to go through suffering. We're all going to go through tribulations. And God allows us to go through some of these in order to help others. Whenever I think about this idea, this verse, this passage, I always think back to my pastor when I was growing up. He was here uh, for my ordination last year. Pastor Farinella, and he started the church, still pastoring the church, and uh, I grew up uh, going to the church. I, I moved to the Seattle area when I was eight, and we started going to that church when I was, you know, just a kid, and uh, went there and basically a member there for, you know, 20 years. I think back to my pastor and what he went through. When I was in college, I graduated high school, and then I went to the university for a year. I took a year off, and I went to Bible college for a year. So I took one year off, went to Bible college, and came back, finished my degree, and you know, just kind of started moving on with my life. But when I was in, I think, late high school, maybe early college, late high school, uh, my pastor's wife was diagnosed with cancer. So she was diagnosed with cancer. They started going through this treatment and that treatment. She went through chemo. She did all of, all, all, all of those treatments. She went through cancer. She, you know, got a fairly clean bill of health. And then I think she, you know, that the cancer returned and, and they were trying to do the treatments. And, you know, so they tried some different things. They tried all sorts of different things. Eventually she passed when I was at, uh, I think right before I went to Bible college, maybe right after I went to Bible college. She passed away. Now, of course, we were all devastated because our pastor's wife was really a, a bedrock for our church. She was known as a prayer warrior. She was, she was somebody who, she always had a special place where she would pray. And she would go and she would pray for long periods of time. And, and uh, you know, when they had bought a house, they, she felt like she didn't have her own special place to pray. And so they built a little deck on the outside of their house, just a very simple, plain deck, maybe eight feet by eight feet, no covering, nothing, just a very plain, simple wooden deck. And she would go out there early in the mornings and she would pray. She would just kneel there. It might be drizzling, might be raining. She would just pray. She was known as a prayer warrior. Everybody loved her. Great spirit. I mean, just a solid uh, bedrock for the church. And honestly, when she died, all of us were really puzzled. Why would God allow this to happen? Everybody loved her. She was a godly woman, a great help to the church. And we were all devastated and greatly puzzled by this. And I don't know all of the answers why God allowed for her to be taken. But this I know. In the next five years, two of our deacons lost their wives to cancer. Our treasurer lost his wife to cancer. And another faithful man lost his wife. She had knee surgery. And tragically, uh, uh, in, in the middle of the night after her surgery, she had a heart attack and she died. In the first five years after that, four 
you know, kind of fairly prominent individuals in the, in the church lost their wives. And in all of those, we were equally devastated. And again, I don't know all of the answers for that, but this I know. Our pastor was able to comfort all of them. You know, if you've never gone through something, you've never gone through it, right? You've never gone through it. it, it you, you might have little glimpses of it, but if you've never gone through it, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it's like to go through some of these experiences. I remember after Bible college, I went to Korea. I lived there for a year before I came back to the States. And it was when I was in Korea, and I'm, you know, I'm not that, I'm not fluent, you know, and, you know, I'm struggling with the language and things like that. I know a little bit here and there, but, you know, I'm not fluent. I don't, I don't understand the preaching, all of these things. It's when I moved to Korea that I really realized, oh, this is what it's like to move to a foreign country and live there. Because when you first get there, everything's fun, everything's fresh, everything's exciting. You see all the new things, you're trying all the new foods and all of this and that. But after a couple of months, people start treating you just like they treat everybody else. <laughs> And you just become one of the people. And you just, you just have to keep up. And I realized, wow, this is really tough because some of the things that are obvious to me here in the States, I had no idea what I was doing when I was there in Korea. And I, thankfully, I had some friends. I had to go get an ID card. I didn't even know the first place of where to even get an ID card or what to do. And I had a friend who helped me in all of these things. And it was when I went there and moved there and I was in a, a place that was, you know, different from the place that I had grown up and I came back one of the things that I thought about was, oh, my parents must have gone through the same thing when they moved to the States. <laughs> when they, they were born in Korea, raised in Korea, went to college in Korea, and then came here. They must have gone through all of these things. They don't know where to go in order to get certain things and, and the way and the system. And it's, it's when I went through some of those things that I, I began to better understand you know, some of the things that maybe my parents had gone through, and I could kind of project onto that a little bit of, wow, I, I understand a little bit better some of the difficulties that they may have gone through, and I'm sure that they went through so many more things. I had Google Translate, which of course was terrible at the time, but at least it helped a little bit, you know, these little things. And so I, when I went through some of those, those things, I, I began to realize a little bit like, oh, people who immigrate to a different country, I, I feel like I understand a little bit more because I was born and raised here in the States. And when you go through something that somebody else has also gone through, you begin to be able to relate with them, be able to extend some consolation having gone through a similar situation. And the Bible says, he allows us to go through suffering because there are people suffering around us and God wants to comfort them. How is God going to comfort them? Of course, God can comfort them directly, but also God can comfort them through other believers who have gone through the same thing. Verse number five, for as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. You know what God wants to do? He wants to help you, to give you consolation and comfort in the suffering that you're going through. When you're suffering through something, through something, we can go to God, receive comfort and consolation in that. Verse number six, and whether you be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. So what Paul is saying is, he's saying, if we go through affliction, it's so that we could relate with you when you go through affliction. 
And if we receive comfort, it's so that we could extend comfort to you and help you through your affliction. Verse 7, and our hope of you is steadfast, knowing that as ye are partakers of the sufferings, so shall ye be also of the consolation. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure, above strength, insomuch that we despaired even of life. But we had the sentence of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God, which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a death, and doth deliver, in whom we trust that, ye, that he will yet deliver us. What Paul is saying is, we were going through ministry, and we thought we were dead. We thought we were going to die. We thought we weren't going to make it. We were going through great suffering, and he says, we went through that suffering in part so that we could help you. And God allows us to go through suffering so that we could extend comfort to others. Fifthly, the reason why suffering works for us is that God expands our cheer after suffering. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. In verse number two, the Bible says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. There are certain joys that can only be accessed on the other side of suffering. We rejoice in salvation, amen? Aren't you glad for salvation? Aren't you glad for God's grace? Aren't you glad that you can have your sins forgiven? If you're saved, aren't you glad your sins are forgiven? That they are paid for? that they are never to return. We rejoice in salvation. I'm glad for my salvation. You know who's also glad for my salvation? God. Did you know God is glad for your salvation? Did you know God is rejoicing in your salvation? God's happy that you're saved. You know, uh, 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 last week we took a look at, at some different passages there in, in the book of Luke. And there's a couple of passages regarding salvation in that section. There's, there's this parable of the shepherd who finds a lost sheep, right? He has a hundred sheep. He's in charge and leading a hundred sheep. And when he gets back to the fold, he counts them all as they come into the fold. There are 99 when he knows he started with a hundred. There's one that is lost. What does the Bible say? That he leaves the 90 and nine and he goes and he finds the one. When he goes and finds the one, what happens? He rejoices. Oh, I found him. I found my missing lamb. I found my missing sheep. He's joyful that he has found the sheep. The next illustration is, a, is a, the parable of a woman who has lost a coin. She has 10 silver coins and loses one of them. Now, I was reading into this a little bit, and it, it seems that the, the dollar amount of uh, each of these coins would have been a day's wage, okay? So if we take that calculation... Here in LA, what's the minimum wage? Like $15 an hour, right? So $15 an hour, eight hours a day, you're making $120, okay? So a day's wage would be 
$120. So let's round it to $100, right? If you lost a $100 bill, you would go looking for it, amen? Right? Is there anybody rich enough here who'd be like, ah, $100, no big deal, no worries. I think we'd all look for it, right? I, I, I had a $100 bill, where is it? You go looking for it. When you find the $100 bill, what do you do? You rejoice. Oh, I found a, hey, let's go get ice cream. You spend it right away, right? You know, is that funny? You find it and you go spend it. I don't know why that is, but that's what we do, right? You'd be joyful that you found it again. But as I was reading a little bit more, uh, there was a few different commentaries, a little bit of speculation, but it seems to be that these coins were not just a dollar amount. It's not like this lady just lost her wallet or maybe was putting the coins in the wallet and one slipped out, okay? It seems like this was a little bit more significant, would have been related to a wedding. So one commentary mentioned that these coins would have been used as some sort of part of like a head decoration and would have been some sort of equivalent to what we call or what we use as a wedding ring. It would have been an indication that this woman was married. Uh, another commentary wrote that this seemed to be part of the dowry and so would have been significant to have lost a part of that dowry would have been, of course, a great shame to her. And of course, we're not exactly sure. There seems to be some indication that this was more than just a dollar amount. It, it would have had some special significance to her. But if we're to extend that, can you imagine if you have your wedding ring and you lose your wedding ring, right? You will go looking for it, amen? <laughs> you need to go look for it. You're searching high and low, looking everywhere in order to find it. Now, hopefully you're smart enough to at least put it in an obvious place. If you're going to clean up or whatever, do these things, put it in an obvious place. But if you lost it, you would go looking for it. And if you found it, how happy would you be? Maybe more relief, but happy. And the idea here is there is happiness in the one who finds that which is lost. The third parable that is there is the parable of the prodigal son. Remember there was the man with two sons? Remember the one said, give me my inheritance now? Inheritances are given when you die, amen? Can you imagine the hubris of a son saying, I'm not gonna wait until you die, I want your money now for me. Give me your money right now. That's the prodigal son. And the father gives it to him. And he goes off, he wastes it, he spends it all, there's a famine there in the land, and he's feeding the pigs. And he's so hungry, he would eat the pig's food. And he's looking at himself thinking, what am I doing here? My dad was wealthy. Uh, my servants, or my dad's servants, live better than I do. I should just go back to my dad and just ask him to be a servant. Remember, he goes back, and the father every day was out there looking for his son, waiting for his son, looking out. And he sees a figure on the horizon coming towards him, and he sees that it's his son. He runs over, gives him a big old hug, and he rejoices that his son that was lost is saved. So the illustration there, of course, is not just that we can and should rejoice in our salvation, but also that God rejoices in our salvation. Did you know that in order for God to have the joy of a restored relationship with us, Jesus had to suffer? He had to die on the cross in order for us to be reunited and have the joy of the reunion. Amen? You following me here? Right? He had to die. If he did not die, we are lost. Amen? We are never restored. 
We are forever separated from God. God will never experience that relationship restored, and neither will we. We cannot, because we have our sins that we must pay for, that God is just. But because God loved us, he sent his son to die on the cross to pay for our sins. He went through that suffering in order, not just for us to have joy, but he received that joy also of being restored with us, which indicates to us, one of the reasons we go through suffering is because there are certain joys that are inaccessible until we go through suffering. First Peter chapter 4, verse 13, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's suffering. Why should I rejoice in the suffering that I go through? And when I suffer for the Lord, when I try to do the right thing, when I try to witness to somebody, when I say, hey, no, that's, that's wrong, that's sin, I'm not going to do that, and neither should you, that's sin, that's breaking God's law, and you need to repent of your sin, you need to be saved. Why, why should we rejoice when we go through suffering for the sake of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. God expands our cheer after suffering. That's how suffering works for us. Sixthly and lastly, we see that suffering works for us because God exalts in Christ those who suffer. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 7, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. This is Jesus. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name above which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2 indicates that Jesus humbled himself greater than anybody else humbled himself and went through suffering greater than anybody else, taking the sin of the whole world upon his shoulders. And because he went through that suffering, God exalted him above every name, that is in all of creation. In this life, the name of Jesus was cast down. His name is used as a curse word, but God the Father gave God the Son a position that is higher than any other, indicating that God exalts those who go through suffering for him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 9, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. First Peter chapter one, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ, which was in them did signify when it testified before the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. The example of Christ is clear. God exalts those who suffer for him, which extends to us. Second Peter chapter two, verse number 12. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Now, this is not in regards to salvation. You see the, the parallel here. If we suffer, if we choose to associate ourselves with the Lord, and, and when people are cursing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and all of these things, and we point out sin, we try to tell people about the Lord, and about salvation, and about the word of God, and about a restored relationship with him, and we suffer for the sake of the Lord, and we go through that suffering, we will reign. But if we remain silent, we deny that relation. I, I don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a Christian. And we keep silent. We, we don't say anything. We don't do anything. If we deny him, he also will deny us. Deny us what? 
some level of position. Romans chapter 8, verse number 17, and if Christ then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with, with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. See, Christ went through suffering. That's the example that he gave us, that we should follow in his footsteps. Why? Because suffering works for us. This makes it very clear. God desires to exalt us for all of eternity, but we must be willing to go through suffering in this life. And that perspective changed the way that Paul viewed suffering. It says in the Bible that he says, for this light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now, when you read the book of Acts and you read the suffering of Paul, does that look like light affliction to you? He was stoned, he was beaten, he was thrown in prison, he was falsely accused, he, there were riots, there was all sorts of protests about him, there was all sorts of slandering, all sorts of threats, all sorts of attempts on his life. I don't know about you, that doesn't seem like light affliction. That seems like heavy affliction. Affliction I would not want to go through personally. And yet when Paul wrote about it by the inspiration of, of, of the Holy Spirit, he wrote, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. How could he possibly view deep suffering as light and temporary? It's because he saw oh, there's a greater glory that is way more massive, way more important, way more glorious, and way more long-lasting than the short suffering that I'm going through. And that perspective changed how he viewed suffering. And he said, we rejoice in it. Why? Because he said, I know there's a greater joy on the other side. So if we will be more like Christ, Unfortunately or fortunately, whether you think about it, however you want to think about it, really what God desires for us to think about this area of suffering is if we go through suffering, there's greater joy and glory on the other side. So let us, if God so places us in that place of suffering, endure it and receive the joy and glory on the other side. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you addressing this topic of suffering. Of course, none of us certainly in our flesh, desires to go through suffering. We desire to remove pain, to eliminate discomfort. Of course, we don't want to endure suffering. And yet we know from your word that suffering works for us. And so I pray that you would help us to change our perspective, to view suffering the way that you viewed suffering so that we might be able to go through it with happiness and joy understanding the eternal weight of glory that is waiting for us if we are faithful to you, enduring suffering for righteousness' sake. Of course, it won't be easy. And of course, enduring through that suffering will require your strength. And I pray that we would, in those times, go in prayer to you, go to the throne of grace, begging for mercy and grace for that time knowing that your grace is sufficient for us. And God, I pray that if there's somebody here going through suffering right now, that you would bring them comfort from your Holy Spirit, from your word, or maybe from another believer, 
And God, for those of us that are going through suffering or will go through suffering, I pray that we would view it as an opportunity for us not just to receive joy for ourselves, but also to help others to endure their own suffering, to comfort them, to console them, so that they might endure and receive their own joy and glory on the other side. I pray that you would help us in whatever place that you will place us in. And God, we know, we, we don't know what the future lays in front of us, but I pray that we would determine today to be faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could stand with me with your heads bowed, the piano is playing.